0: Warning: This episode contains spoilers and strong language.
1: Our first question that we got to answer is what do we want to call this project?
0: I've been thinking about that, and I've come up with nothing. I've come up with a lot of puns about carpenters and, like, nails and stuff like that, but nothing concrete.
1: I had at one point the shape of things.
0: Yeah, that could work, yeah.
1: But, I don't know. Mm.
0: Yeah, it doesn't jump.
1: Maybe we could just do something simple like just completing carpenter.
0: Completing carpenter would be good, from uh, Dark Star to the Ward.
1: Unless he does something else before we finish, but that probably has an 80-20 shot.
0: (laughs) I don't think so. He seems to be slow in his output these days, but you never know.
1: Well, it's not for lack of trying. It's just a lack of anyone giving him money to do anything with anymore.
0: Which is so crazy. I mean, the ward wasn't that bad. Actually, pretty good. Compared to Wes Craven's recent output, it was pretty darn good.
1: So I figure, you know, maybe we could just kind of lay out what is our past experiences with John Carpenter?
0: That's a very good question. My past experiences with John Carpenter, I didn't even know who he was when I started watching John Carpenter movies. There's a channel in Toronto called City TV, and I don't think they do it anymore, but they used to have a late great movies. They would have a guy with a super deep voice, who everyone said I sounded like. He would introduce these movies, and they were always, like, really interesting ones. Not always, but more often than not, it would be, like, something that would really open my eyes to different cinema and different science fiction, like Blade Runner was the first time I saw Blade Runner. Mm. All of these I discovered while babysitting, and I, when I was actually allowed to stay up late. Blade Runner, Westworld, all sorts of, like, darker science fiction and action films. And that's when I discovered a movie called Escape from New York, and mm. I was smitten. Oh my goodness, I still love that movie to this day. I even love the sequel. I think it's great, even though it's the exact same film, but in a different coast.
1: Oh, with Bruce Campbell.
0: Yes, with Bruce Campbell as the uh, plastic surgeon, the grotesque plastic surgeon, love it. And of course it ends with surfing. Giant surfing against a matte screen or whatever, a blue screen, love it. (laughs) And I eventually started learning who he was through Halloween. I became a big fan of Halloween. It's one of those things when everyone says, Freddy or Jason, I always say Michael ditto yeah it's just it's so great and it's a perfect horror film in my mind a horror film should always be like an incident like i like story and i like setup but it should always feel like you're just kind of like catching these people right before this horrible moment yes that they have to survive or
1: not (laughs) and that's what i love is halloween it's basically everything goes down in one hour it's true and the rest of the film is just the build-up to everything going down in that one hour
0: Exactly, and I like that sort of thing for horror, and even in action. Like That's why I liked recent films like Dread and um, Yes The Raid, where it just feels like you're coming in, you're catching these people right when the shit hits the fan, and then go, and then you kind of see how they survive. Other Carpenter films, uh, The Thing. The Thing was what got me into finding out who this guy was and what was it was about. I used to read this book called uh, Morvern Caller. It was a Scottish book. It's about this young woman whose boyfriend kills himself, and she takes his manuscript, but then puts her name on it and gets all the money and then just travels the world. And she's like a pop culture obsessed. And she talks about how it was hard in Scotland to find a copy of John Carpenter's The Thing. So I immediately had to find this movie, The Thing. And I watched it and I was just like, oh my God, that was the scariest and most original movie I have ever seen in my life. And I still love it
1: to this day. (laughs) Wow. So, Julia, do you have any experience with Carpenter?
2: Mm, Not like Alex, no. I think I only ever owned one John Carpenter movie before Alex, and that was Escape from L.A., which I purchased without seeing it on VHS exclusively because Steve Buscemi was in it. And I was going through a really big Steve Buscemi phase, which has yet to fade. But (laughs) (laughs) it was right at the pinnacle then where I was like, anything and I thought it was ridiculously enjoyable. Again, especially the Steve Buscemi scene, which is what you see in the trailer, which mm-hmm. is why I bought it, which is him riding his convertible against the street as he's surfing down the thing. And then... Other than that, like, I didn't really know who he was until I met Alex, and The Thing was the first thing that he showed me.
0: Yeah, I showed you The nice. Thing. I made you watch The Thing. It used to be a movie that my friend Jessica, who is one of the other people on the podcast that I'm doing, The Midnight Society, she's a big horror buff. We used to watch it when we were all single for Valentine's Day. We'd always watch the most brutal movies we could find for Valentine's Day.
2: I think the best thing about The Thing is that—how many times have I watched now? Three You've
0: times? watched it three or four times, I think.
2: I forget every time. So— <laughs> Every time is like a new, and I am equally terrified, and I'm like, what's going to happen?
0: She has the most delightfully bad memory of all time. It's (laughs) it's amazing for watching movies. Every time in Aliens, I say, yeah, they made it. It's all over now. And and as soon as 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 Bishop gets ripped in half, her mouth is on the ground.
2: (laughs) I never see it coming. Every time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful.
1: Gullibility is always so fun. Oh, yes, for sure. Well that'll be nice because you'll be approaching this project with probably the freshest eyes of the bunch. Oh absolutely, yes.
0: She hates Big Trouble in Little China.
1: I don't care for it. <laughs> it's a polarizing it's one, yeah.
2: A lot of movies that I dislike more. I think that you could put it on while I crafted in the background or perchance <laughs> looked at things on Pinterest. But honestly to sit down and watch it, no.
0: <laughs> and I had this theory that women just hate this movie, and I know you obviously can't say that, you can't make that generalization, but every woman I know hates that movie, (laughs) hates
2: it. I think it's a very boy-friendly movie that I think just like boys radiate to it for some reason, I don't know
0: why. It's the only Carpenter film I own, so I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if this is like just a a crackpot theory, but so far it's holding up pretty nicely.
1: (laughs) Well, and honestly, one of the reasons I kind of wanted to reach out and get a third person for the project and preferably a woman is because, yeah, a lot of John Carpenter's films are kind of macho guy movies. Mm -hmm. And it would just be interesting to get a different perspective on that.
0: Plus, we need someone who's not completely rapturously in love with John (laughs) Carpenter. Otherwise, it's just going to be you and I going, I love him.
1: Especially when we get to like the five minute fist fight in an alley and they live. Oh, God. Which is about the manliest man scene of all.
0: And I, oh, (laughs) my goodness, I love that scene. (laughs) It just keeps going. All right. How about you with the carpenter?
1: Before I knew who he was, I know as a child that I saw Starman and Big Trouble in Little China, especially Big Trouble in Little China, because I remember as a little kid being completely freaked out by the guy inflating himself.
0: Oh, yeah, that would do it.
1: And I didn't even know what those, I just caught snippets of them on TV. I didn't even know what they were until years later when I saw them again.
0: Oh, okay.
1: It was when I was around 10 or 11, my dad started introducing me to cinema okay when i was 10 and 11 that was when my dad had me watch the godfather and apocalypse now both of which i still haven't been able to watch again (laughs) oh wow but i also at that time saw escape from new york and assault on precinct 13 Mm -hmm. both of which i enjoyed and then as i got into my teens i finally got over my aversion towards horror movies and just dove into them head first and that's when i saw the thing Mm -hmm. Which affected me so much that for years, I literally had all my school notebooks were full of doodles of people splitting open in the mouths and tentacle stalks coming out. Damn. I had people freaked out when they would see my notebooks and I would just say, just go see the thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can't explain that to people. (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah. And then, of course, Halloween. And then as I got deeper into my teens, I actually found out who Carpenter was and started actively pursuing his films. And I think there's probably... Six or seven movies in total that I haven't seen yet. I haven't seen Body Bags. I haven't seen Elvis. I haven't seen. What else haven't I seen? I don't know. See, I could probably just list off the ones I haven't seen. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few I haven't seen either. Memoirs
1: of an Invisible Man. I
0: haven't seen Most that. Most
1: people haven't seen that. I've
0: yeah. seen
2: that one. Yeah. That's the oh. one I have seen. <laughs> there
0: you go. There you
1: go. There you go. And someone's watching me. Those are the only ones I haven't seen. Otherwise, I've seen pretty much all.
0: I haven't seen Prince of Darkness and uh, you said Starman. I haven't seen that either. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: That was his big Oscar film. Oh, really? The only film he did that ever got, well, aside from the short film we're going to discuss today. Of course. It's the only film he did that was nominated for an Oscar, and that was just for Jeff Bridges.
0: Uh, okay. Jeff Bridges. Yes. Fantastic actor. Uh, what was the, I had another Carpenter memory, but I, I think I've lost it. So, oh, In the Mouth of Madness. They filled some of that in my hometown.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. And In My Mouth Madness, that was always been one of my favorites from the 90s, so that one's going to be fun to revisit.
0: I did not know he did that, but I also really enjoyed that, and that made me a huge fan of Sam Neill. They shot the scenes in the hotel, the little bed and breakfast that they stay in. Oh, okay. My hometown of Georgetown in Ontario. Nice. I don't remember where. I'm sorry, my bad. <laughs> if wife. you
1: like that movie, then I'll be curious when we get to Prince of Darkness, because In the Mouth of Madness is kind of the spiritual successor to Prince of Darkness.
0: Okay, I'm very curious about that one because I always associated it in my teenage mind with Warlock, which I was not a huge fan of.
1: Oh, I love the first Warlock.
0: I, I've never seen that. I've seen Warlock 3.
2: That's the only one I've seen. It's Warlock 3. The
1: sequels are horrible. Same video yeah. store, that's why. Oh, you got to see the first Warlock. It is fantastic. It's hilarious.
0: I will watch that for sure.
1: Intentionally.
0: Okay. Intentionally is cool. (laughs) I also like unintentionally.
1: It was written by David Tui, who, or David Twohey, who went and did Pitch Black and the Chronicles of Riddick. Okay. It was before he became a director. But yeah, I I, I love David. David Tui, I can't, it's it's either Twohey or Twohey. I can't remember how it's pronounced, but he is also one of my favorite filmmakers and just has a very John Carpenter style to him.
0: Pitch Black is definitely a John Carpenter-esque film. Mm -hmm. There's a few movies out there that are very much like spiritual John Carpenter films, like Attack the Block, I find to be a very good John Carpenter film. Yes. Dread as well.
1: Oh, Dread is probably the most Carpenter film I've seen not done by Carpenter.
0: Yeah, I would probably agree with that. It's pretty damn Carpenter.
1: Also, around in my teens, I started collecting screenplays, and I've got pretty much all of the ones that Carpenter wrote, even a few that haven't been made, and I just love reading the guy, I just love watching the guy. His audio commentaries are always fantastic, especially the ones with Kurt Russell, because him and Kurt Russell just kick back and just pretty much are laughing their way through their entire movies.
0: I watched the thing, and yeah, they were just totally broing down, it was great.
1: (laughs) I love the one where they admit that John Carpenter says, Kurt, my favorite movie that you've ever been in, and the one I always wished I could have directed was Captain Ron. (laughs)
2: <laughs> my parents and I have a thing for Captain Ron. We watched that It's movie, a good movie. Almost <laughs> as much as Deuce Bigglo and Male Jigglo. It was a family favorite.
0: That's nice.
2: Both my parents, just for some reason, like they could never really agree on any movies, but for some reason, a silly comedy would hit every a year or so and they would just go nuts. It was uh, Deuce Biglow and Male Jigglo, Captain Ron,
1: and Son in Law. Son in Law. <laughs> yeah. Son in Law. Oh, God, I haven't seen that one in <laughs> oh. 15 years. <laughs> So anyways, we never really introduced what we're doing here.
0: (laughs) What are we doing here, Noel?
1: I guess what we're doing here is we're going to be starting a monthly podcast project going through each of John Carpenter's movies. That
0: sounds pretty wonderful. I'm very excited about that.
1: Something I've been looking forward to doing at some point, and I was just always looking for someone to do it with me. There you go. Projects are always so much more fun when you have other people to do them with.
0: Oh, absolutely. Very true. And you will not meet a more enthusiastic Carpenter fan than myself.
1: Yeah, so to our listeners out there, we'll be doing... This is probably going to take us about three years to get through. So we're going to do every film directed and or written by John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And I think aside from the main podcast, we're going to do blog posts covering various tie-ins and spinoffs and sequels that he wasn't already involved in. And the remakes I kind of already covered in my show, I Hate Love remakes. so I'll just backlink to those.
0: Noel will be covering a lot of those as he is the uh, human... I already have most of them. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I will be doing my best to also update. Uh, my knowledge is not as strong, but part of this is going to be kind of like going through it for the first time. We're going to go through chronologically as if mm-hmm. they were at least in the theater, and it's going to be our take on it for some films that we haven't seen in a long time. So it's going to be both a mix of like fresh perspective and good old-fashioned feelings that we have for these films.
2: <laughs> and I'm going to try my best to have an opinion <laughs> in between you two as much as I can. <laughs>
1: You go nuts. This will
2: probably be very different from the two of you.
1: <laughs> well, that's actually, that, you know, I absolutely welcome that. I actually prefer it when we don't all agree. <laughs> Otherwise, then what do we talk about?
2: Yeah. Exactly. It'd be boring. Do you think that's great? I also think that's great. I agree.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this movie was cool. Yeah. End of episode.
0: Exactly. Or just commentary of us watching Big Trouble in Little China and just going like, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) every five
1: minutes. (laughs) And then what I'm especially interested to explore is just the ones that he wrote but didn't direct, because these are ones I actually haven't seen most of these. Black Moon Rising, Zuma Beach, Eyes of Laura Mars.
0: Some of these I haven't even heard of. Some of these I know in name only. Yeah.
1: (laughs) This is going to be a very interesting project, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. And thank you both for joining me on it.
0: Oh, no problem at all. It's uh, our pleasure.
1: (laughs) Do we want to move into the first subject that we're going to cover?
0: Absolutely. Let's move right into The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. A
1: 1970 USC student short film that somehow got a wider distribution and won the Oscar for short that year.
0: Very, very fascinating. I had no idea of the short's existence until you told me about this.
1: I'd heard of it for a long time, but this was my first time actually seeing it. And Anyone out there who wants to see it, it's on YouTube. Just beware that the audio is very sketchy. (laughs)
0: If you put it into Google as well, you should be able to find a more cleaned up audio. Uh, I'm not sure of the website that we found, but we found one with a very cleaned up audio. It's I think it was like Vimo something. Vimo?
1: Okay. Okay, I'll have to look at that one. The one that I watched was on YouTube and it was, I could still make out the gist of what they were talking about. What helps is it, it is largely a silent film and the dialogue is kind of peripheral to the story. You could still get the gist of what was going on.
0: Yeah, we definitely got the gist. We just had a one-year-old that was kind of just talking to herself, so it was hard for <laughs> us to uh, make out exactly what it was. And when he was talking to the one character on the rocking chair, we wanted to hear oh, what he Yeah, yeah that's
2: yeah. when we gave up, and I'm like, we need to find another version. So yeah. we went on search for another one, and we found a much clearer one. And
1: the version that I saw also had, a, I believe it was Italian subtitles.
2: Yeah. Yes. So I
1: could kind of also get the gist based on what they were saying in the <laughs> subtitles, it's even three. though I don't speak Italian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you know enough words to be be like ah that means good
1: (laughs) so what will we say this film is about
0: that is a very good question
1: i would say it's about the pre-internet nerd experience
0: yeah definitely especially when he's talking to the uh, woman there i'm just that is a missed geek connection right there
1: this entire short you could have him instead of being dressed as a cowboy he could be wearing a starfleet uniform with spock ears and it would play out almost exactly the same way
0: And it sort of works as like a fantasy in a way because everything kind of goes his way until he has to interact with people and then it's just him obsessing over minor details.
1: Yeah. The best way to sum it up is just it's a guy, he lives on his own, a young man who is a Western geek. Mm -hmm. He idolizes the Western heroes. He tries to emulate the Western heroes in the way he dresses, the way his John Wayne walk is hilarious. Yes, it is. And he's just stuck having to live a normal life. He's like in an apartment that he's due on the rent. He's late to work. He loses his job. He gets mugged. He can't afford to buy anything. And he always tries to either view the real world through the lens of his fanboy fantasy or try to emulate that fanboy fantasy. And the real world always just kind of comes by and kicks him.
0: Yeah, he just can't connect with anyone because uh, one is that interested in what he's interested in or wants to play along with his fantasy.
1: Yeah, I mean, you pointed out exactly that bit there at the end where the one woman sees him dressed as a cowboy and says, can I sketch you? And he like pounces on that one moment of someone else is showing interest in the thing that I'm passionate about. And then he just starts spewing. He, he literally vomits upon her as fandom.
0: Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. It, of
1: all this minutiae detail. And it's like, you drew a good picture there, but it would be more authentic if he did this and he did this. It was so embarrassing because I've been there.
0: <laughs> oh, I think we've all been there at one point or another, especially geeks in their early 20s. And most of us kind of get over that, but we get super passionate and super defensive yes. at the same time. And we're just like, love what I love, but don't come near me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of settled a little more now, now that the internet has kind of been able to. The problem with him is he doesn't have anyone to share this with.
0: Exactly. And yeah. nowadays
1: in the internet, you can kind of reach out and find people to share it with. And in this one, he has nothing.
0: Exactly. If he had that sort of outlet, then he could get his excitement over with and then kind of smooth over the details and learn to like approach people in a different way. Yeah. Because of this, it's just like everything at once.
1: (laughs) He's alienated by society and by escaping into his fantasy, he alienates himself even more.
0: Absolutely.
1: Julia, what'd you think of it? I would say I could definitely tell it was a student film. Um, Mm -hmm.
2: I could tell it was a student film because I was bored and confused. (laughs) Um, That's pretty much the way student films go. (laughs) I <laughs> she's a uh, film student by the way coming from film school I would say definitely would have won but no one would have liked it except the people on the judging panel I think that the scene that he had in the park with the girl was the best part of the whole thing and I would have loved to have seen that for 23 minutes instead of him just walking around doing nothing would have been really great because I thought that was actually a really nice nugget. And I would have seen a lot more of that rather than everything else.
1: Well, I'd agree that maybe this entire film you could have done in about five, six minutes instead yeah. of 20. Yeah, I
2: remember in the beginning when we are watching him get dressed for five minutes, I was like, buddy, you only got 23 minutes. Get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I get it.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think you do need some of that build-up before he gets to the park, but it could have been more tighter and more montage-like. Oh, yeah. It could have been in like three minutes instead of 15 And my one problem is that he was stopping and listening to the old guy tell the stories because the entire story is about him not being able to connect. And there's someone he can connect with.
2: Yeah. And then I found that was the most student-y looking part of it. You know, like the close-up of the rocking chair and the clocks and like all that stuff. I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) Like, it's like he could not trust in the actor's ability to act and instead felt that he had to create a mood himself Mm -hmm. by shooting exterior stuff.
1: And it should be pointed out that John Carpenter didn't direct this.
2: Absolutely. I was shocked. I was like, one person didn't write direct and star in this because that's what it looks like. It looks like a yeah. person went, I have an idea and I feel like I can get it across to people. And then they do it. And then they're like, isn't that great? And everyone's like, I don't get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll get more into the credits of who all did what here in a little bit. But my one big problem is I also hated how it ended because it ended with him just going back into the fantasy. And I almost think it would have been better had it ended with him finding someone to share it with.
0: That would have been nice, but visually it looked great.
1: It looked great, but I would like it if he met the old guy in the park. That would have been nice. And then he finally forged a bond with someone.
2: I think because it is a visual based short. Mm -hmm. It is not about human connection or about, you know, like trying to come to that kind of conclusion. It's about looks, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, kind of like what kind of set up in that scene where he's talking to the old man, where they're doing all the shots instead of actually going with them and their connection, eye contact, facial expression, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That in the end, they created this ending that looked good, but meant nothing.
1: Yeah, and my main problem is that it didn't feel any different from any of the other... Inc- I mean, it's like, you could have put that scene with them in the park and him having that fantasy in the middle of the film, because it doesn't complete an arc at all.
0: No, there's really...
1: It's just another incident.
0: Beginning is obviously him waking up, but there's no middle or ending. I found that I was confused because the tone kind of shifted. I wasn't sure if this was whimsical or sad, because sometimes... A bit it's, of both. It's, yeah. <laughs> He slips into the cowboy motif and then like everyone's sort of playing along with it. Like the cars are making cattle sounds or his boss is kind of like skinning an apple as like a saloon owner would do. That was kind of cool. But then it would go into him getting the crap kicked out of him. But there was no him like standing up to them like a cowboy would. It was just him kind of just getting beaten up. So, yeah. yeah.
1: What I liked about the mugging scene is that as he's walking down the alley and he hears people coming behind him, he's actually getting into it. Because he's like picturing almost this fantasy of I'm going to turn around and have a standoff. He's even grinning. And then he turns around and it's just a couple of guys who call him a faggot, beat him up and take his money.
0: Life kind of rushes up on you. You can't really manipulate it in your fantasy.
1: (laughs) But then I even love like when he then goes to buy the drink at the juice cart. He's like trying to flirt with that lady by saying, oh, yeah, you know, I just got in a fight. But then he's like left completely embarrassed because he doesn't have anything to pay for the drink that he ordered.
0: No one wants to know about your fight, maybe in the old West, but in here it's kind of alarming in the present day.
1: Yeah, just that great then three minute sequence of him just rattling off all this stuff to the painter is just one of the most horribly, brilliantly, honestly awkward sequences around. It was hard to watch, but it was so honest.
2: I have to say, like, as a girl, I've been on the other side of that.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I don't doubt it.
2: Numerous times.
1: I've been on that other side with other guys (laughs) 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 who just are looking for friends.
2: I totally am into it. That's the thing. I'm totally into it. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about it, but the idea of it to me is exciting. So in the beginning, I'm like, that's awesome. That's amazing. What about this? And it's almost like I don't like it in the right way. Mm -hmm. It's like, if I don't come at it from the right angle, they kind of like shut down almost. Yeah. It's like their ability to communicate isn't as good. And I found as guys get older, it's way better, but sort of like that sort of late teens, twenties type of thing, where I'll be like, try to get into their passion and talk to them about it. But if I don't go about it in the same way that they do, or I don't say the right things, or I get the certain amount of things wrong, they almost get angry.
0: I could definitely see that. I remember in the late nineties in parties, there used to be these guys, there was one at every party that would really be into the matrix. <laughs> But you never knew what The Matrix really was about. You'd say, oh, yeah, I know it's about this, this, and this. like, no, this is what The Matrix is really about. And you're like, okay. (laughs) And they would talk to you for an hour, and you couldn't escape.
1: (laughs) See, nowadays, we just have fans of Grant Morrison's Invisibles who will just yell at The Matrix. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, overall, would we recommend the short, not recommend it?
0: I would have recommended it, I'd say, if I got to it like 10, 15 years ago, absolutely. But now I'm approaching it at this age, and it just didn't really work for me. I just felt it was kind of um, spare.
1: Julia,
2: I think what would have been neat is if I mean, I don't even know because I don't know enough about what John Carpenter did. But if that conversation was the beginning of something that created a better movie, Mm -hmm. do you know where you like you really love something and then you want to find everything about it? So say that conversation became this amazing movie that you really liked and you were able to go back and watch the short from where it came from, Mm -hmm. all rough and not quite figured out. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. (laughs) But without context. No, (laughs) no. No, I would not recommend it. I think I've seen scenes like that also in other things that, you know, you don't have to sit through that for, but I think it could be the start of something. Yeah. I think as a student film, it could be the start of something really awesome.
0: A lot of raw materials in there yeah. that totally yeah. would be salvageable, and if they were formatted better yeah. and, like,
2: rearranged,
0: it would be very, very Yeah, I effective. think
2: changes in, like, tone and getting some, you know, better actors and, you know, just kind of really exploring that kind of person rather in a more of a an interaction type way instead of, uh you know, like a watching him if Mm -hmm. that makes sense then i think it could be something really good but as a short no
0: it happens in a lot of films like that there's just too many scenes of like buying coffee or like you know just Mm -hmm. where it's sort of like setting up atmosphere but it's i just don't have the time for it anymore (laughs) i want something to be happening
1: (laughs)
2: yeah i think if there's a tone though that's the thing i think that's why maybe it's just the first one you know because i think true artists are able to do something with nothing where you're able to watch someone get dressed for 10 minutes and it's fascinating that's true but he doesn't have the skill yet, whoever the director is, I don't know, whoever mm-hmm. created, the producer, the writer, everybody together, it's not there. So the idea, they saw something that they really liked and yeah. they tried to copy it, which happens a lot in student films, mm-hmm. but they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't do it.
1: I could see that. Well, I also don't recommend it for mostly the same reason you guys don't. There's interesting little snippets in there, but again, I wish they were in a better movie. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, they just don't add up to anything. And I think we should just take a moment to just say who actually was involved in what. I mean, Carpenter co-wrote it, did the music, and did the editing. The music, though, you can't really see much early Carpenter, because he was more for just the pulsating guitar tracks, and here it's more, you got some banjo, you got whistling. I mean, it's a good soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But it's not really like a forebearer of what he would become. And there's nothing really narratively in this that is setting a precedent for something that he would do later on. I mean, Billy isn't even one of his typical antiheroes. No. And he never really did another story that was about not being able to connect with people quite on this level. I even hesitate to recommend this for John Carpenter fans because you're not really going to find what I think you'll expect to find.
0: Definitely not. It's not cool. It's not a genre pick. It doesn't really have that. Like, John Carpenter films are like, there's not an inch of fat on them. I find that yeah. they're like very streamlined, very like lean movies. And this was just kind of like very wishy washy.
1: <laughs> and his films are always about the badass.
0: Oh, yeah. And this is a film about the loser. Exactly. We don't have time for the loser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're Carpenter land.
1: And as for the other people involved, uh, James Rokos, who directed this, he never directed anything else. He produced a few small things here and there, but didn't really do anything else. John Longenecker, who co-wrote and produced it, he did a few other things here and there, but nothing of significance. Trace Johnson, one of the other co-writers, he did this 1983 cult film called Hysterical that I've never seen before, but it looks kind of interesting.
0: I've never heard of it, but if it's in the 1980s and it's a cult film, there's a good chance I'd like to watch it.
1: And the other co-writer and cinematographer here who is very important to mention is Nick Castle, who we will see again because he is one of John Carpenter's best friends. And along with Tommy Lee Wallace, Nick Castle will work with John Carpenter throughout the next decade. And then they both went off and became directors in their own right. Nick Castle did The Last Starfighter. Oh, yeah. The Last Starfighter, The Boy Who Could Fly, Dennis the Menace, Major <laughs> Payne.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
1: he also co-wrote Steven Spielberg's Hook, which he was going to direct before Spielberg came in.
0: Spielberg has a tendency of doing that. It's just like, oh, you're going to direct this? I'm going to direct this now.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the only really two names among this crew worth looking at are John Carpenter and Nick Castle. And as I said, we'll see Nick Castle again. He actually plays Michael Myers in Halloween. He's the co-writer of Escape from New York. Oh, okay. So we will come across his name again. And then I just also want to mention among the actors, the woman who we meet in the park. That's uh, Kristen Harmon, the sister of Mark Harmon, the star of NCIS.
0: Okay. Oh, I've never actually seen an NCIS episode.
1: Who she's actually a very popular painter and illustrator. Oh, okay. What's NCIS? uh ncis is to us what flashpoint is to you got
2: there it there you go yeah flashpoint uh, was made right next to me it's there the you go yep. next to mine. The yeah the office next to you mm-hmm. <laughs> we get to go
0: next what movie is next yeah. what movie is next i have done uh, extensive research obviously
1: our next movie is going to be dark star
0: i thought it was dark star but i sometimes put my foot in my mouth i always thought dark star was the first but for some reason i always had in my mind that that was a student film
1: Well, it is, actually. It started as a student film, but then a distributor picked it up and hired them to shoot additional footage so they could expand it out to not really like a full-length feature, but like an hour and change feature.
0: Okay, yeah. I remember loving it, and a very good band that I like called Pinback is actually named after one of the main characters in the movie.
1: I haven't seen it probably since the mid-90s. It's been a long time. I loved it when I saw it, but it's been a long time. (laughs)
0: Yeah, early 2000s, I think for me, I think I found like a VHS copy at some indie um, video. I've
1: owned it. I've had it on DVD. I just haven't watched it yet. (laughs) And now I picked up the nice new Blu-ray swanky edition.
0: Excellent. Very good. Yeah, I would love to have the complete Carpenter set on Blu-ray. That would be wonderful. But right now, all I have is um, Big Trouble in Little China.
1: That's a good one to have.
0: It's a feel-good movie for me. I like to put it on when I'm down in the dumps and watch... Uh,
1: Jack Burton is a feel-good kind of guy.
0: Yeah, old Jack. He'll get you through. <laughs>
1: and it'll be interesting because this is also going to be the first time. I, I want to sit down and I want to finally read the Dark Star novelization.
0: Oh, my goodness. A novelization of that? That's incredible.
1: It was one of the first novelizations done by Alan Dean Foster, the guy who like novelized everything throughout the 80s.
0: I used to read novelizations, but only in the 80s when I was younger, because I would love movies so much that I would want one that I could actually read in my bedroom, basically.
1: <laughs> I read the novelization of The Good Son. Oh my. I mean, let, let me just take a look here. I have my, <laughs> my shelf of Alan Dean Foster here. And yeah. Novelizations he wrote were Aliens 1 through 3 Black Hole, Alien Nation, uh, Starman, which we'll be getting to again, uh, Last Starfighter, Krull, Clash of the Titans, Outland, The Thing. So, I mean, he novelized three John Carpenter movies.
0: That's amazing. Alien 3, I believe, was the last novelization I ever read. That was actually the last novelization
1: he wrote for a decade because it was such a hellish experience.
0: Oh, wow. I imagine.
1: The producers were on his back just as much as they were David Fincher's.
0: Yeah, that whole production was like a disaster piece.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Alan Dean Foster, I love his stuff, and I've had that novelization sitting on my shelf for a while. I figure this is the project to do it.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a pretty extensive project. I'm very excited. We're going to start in the 70s and work our way up to the 2000s.
1: Oh yeah. And as I said, I collect a lot of screenplays and I have the novelizations for a lot of this stuff. So I think when we get to like films where I have like draft that's like different or a novelization, I think I'll just bring that up when we get to the end of that episode. Sounds good to me. As opposed to doing a full separate blog post on it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You got the knowledge.
1: This is my geek foo and it is strong.
0: Exactly. And we're here for the entertainment and <laughs> some thoughts. <laughs> Basically, we'll uh, try and get out a few jokes or something, I guess.
1: (laughs) So I I think this brings our first pilot episode to a close.
0: Yeah, I would say so. Thank you for joining us, folks, in uh, Carpenter Land, and (laughs) we look forward to entertaining you over the coming years.
1: And unless anyone else has anything to say, we're
0: done. Julia?
2: Oh, no, thank you very much. I had a very good time.
1: (laughs) And I think we're done.
0: (laughs) All right, sounds good. Cut. Masters of Carpentry can be found at mastersofcarpentry.blogspot.com and is in no way affiliated with John Carpenter or the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. Our theme music is Black Rainbow by Jack Locke. To hear more, please visit jacklock.com. That's J-A-K-L-O-C-K-E.com. Masters of Carpentry is a made-of-fail production. Fail.net. We were unpopular before it was cool. I think I saw it when it came out, like when it was a new release rental, not at the theater, but yeah.
1: What was weird was my mom really liked Poly Shore, so I went and saw a bunch of Pauly Shore movies in the theater with my mom.
2: <laughs> it was my
1: dad that really liked him, which doesn't really
2: make sense for like an old British man to be like, that's Pauly Shore. He's really got something. <laughs> so I
1: mean, my mom and I went and saw that in the theater, Jury Duty, In the Army Now. Wow. I think we faded by the time they got the Biodome.
0: I think that's oh. for the best. Biodome would have broken you. Yeah. I did not know he did that, but I also really enjoyed that, and that made me a huge fan of, uh, oh my god, my memory's kicking in, Um, a huge fan of uh, Jurassic Park Jones, we'll call it. (laughs) Um, Oh, what's his name? Sam Neill. Sam Neill, there we go. Obviously, I'm a gigantic fan to this day.
1: And Bruce Willis was just like, damn you, Seagal! (laughs) You know, maybe that's where Bruce Willis's hair went. That's what Steven Seagal has tied behind his head. He
0: took it, yep. <laughs>
1: he just like dangles it mockingly at him.
0: <laughs> uh,.